Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. On this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol, and you ask us, after the resignations of both their co-leaders, where next for the Greens? So UK ministers have released a new set of demands that they want to use to redraw the Northern Ireland Protocol to make it work better for trading between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Alva, what kind of things are they looking to change and would it actually solve this seemingly intractable problem? I think, to be honest, it's too soon to tell. Certainly on the EU side of things and also actually with the Northern Irish parties, I think that they feel like they need to sit down and look at the proposals in detail before they have any sense of whether there's any merit in them. But I suppose the big things, I suppose the overall message is just one of sort of trust us from from the UK to the EU. So asking the EU on various things to just place more trust in the British system taking care of itself. So allowing British businesses, for example, to declare whether something is headed to Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland. And then anything just heading to Northern Ireland won't be subject to checks. So there's an element of taking that on trust. Things like that, not having sort of any checks on medicines, for example, because that's a highly regulated sector. Those are the demands, but there are also things, for example, like no longer having the European Court of Justice being the body that oversees the implementation of the protocol, which goes a bit further, I suppose, because as EU sources are quite keen to point out that that is not a demand coming from anywhere in Northern Ireland. It's so funny that you're really the first person who's asked that note about whether whether these proposals would actually work. I think there's a feeling that it's too complicated and so much of it is actually more about the theatre of it, maybe, rather than the substance. And I think it is only going to be in the the weeks ahead that people will try to separate the detail from the spin around it. Well, it was ever thus, wasn't it, with the with the UK government's approach to this? I mean, you could the way that they actually negotiated this version of the Northern Ireland Protocol in the first place was, you know, 
via the sheer power of spin, wasn't it? So I suppose you you will always eventually reach a point where the spin sort of hits reality and you have to start working out what practical steps are actually, you know, would actually help the situation, but are also sort of ideologically acceptable to the people who wanted to push this Brexit deal through and are, and are still standing by it. I think you you spoke about it, you described it as whether or not Brexit purity still wins out in Morning Call this morning. It's so complicated and technical. The, one of the easiest bits to get your teeth into is whether a veterinary agreement or a sort of a more all-encompassing agreement with the EU separate to the Northern Ireland Protocol would fix the problems. And the EU is very clear that it would. And the nationalists and cross-community parties in Northern Ireland are are also clear that it would. But it's just very interesting when you listen to Brandon Lewis and speak to people in government about this. They sort of say that they don't want that because they think that the the issues with the protocol are bigger and more fundamental than that. So there's no point in doing something like that agreement that only partially fixes it. But actually they do privately admit that it's an ideological issue as well. And they they don't necessarily want to be back in a situation where it's the whole of the UK aligning with the EU on things. I think that that's, that's really, it's, it's interesting, but I actually, a bit that I didn't cover in Morning Call that I, that I also think is the thing that people are grappling with maybe today, it is the theatre of it itself in terms of whether this is meant to be a provocation or whether it is a constructive move. And I think it's for, I suppose, people to make their own minds up about because people just are seeing it very differently. Certainly speaking to the British side, they are really keen to emphasise, you know, one, one person was saying to me, you know, we listened, we heard that people don't want unilateral action. They don't want us to trigger Article 16. So we've said, let's do it with negotiations. Let's do it with discussion. And they're saying that, you know, they're not talking about tearing up the protocol. They're just talking about sensible changes. And so they sort of frame this as quite a constructive move of actually drawing up a set of detailed proposals. And I think actually the language in the command paper is quite conciliatory in lots of ways. But then obviously, I was I was speaking to Stephen about this yesterday. I'm not really sure that publishing a set of demands like that is a constructive move. Certainly, a lot of the Northern Irish parties don't think it is, and the EU doesn't think it is. I mean, the EU is determined to just sort of ignore it and not treat it like a provocation and to just read it over the summer and, you know, engage, you know, at its own pace. And I suppose it's quite used to these kinds of moves from the British government by now. But I think there is concern from some of the Northern Irish parties that this is corrosive to trust and therefore like corrosive to actually making a breakthrough on this. Because as I was just saying at the outset, the overall message of this quite complicated paper is that the, the UK would like a greater level of trust from the EU. But moves like this, where you've negotiated this deal in 2019 and then you're setting out all the ways in which you would like to rewrite it, that in itself is not necessarily very conducive to trust. And, you know, and then, you know, plenty of people in the Northern Irish parties would point out the ways in which the government hasn't delivered on 
aspects of the protocol already around, so for example, around data sharing at, at border points. The EU was meant to have real-time access to British government data on that, and it hasn't been given that. So I suppose one, one person said to me yesterday that there's a sort of trust paradox that the UK is asking for more trust from the EU but then pulling moves like this that don't come off as very trustworthy. It's really striking more than anything else to me, the absolute gulf between what the government is saying it's doing and how it's being interpreted by people and and whether when the government, even privately, when it says that it's you know trying to be constructive and trying to be conciliatory, whether it really means that or whether this is a, a provocation. One of the, the many things which is really interesting about it from a, a sort of Conservative Party thought perspective is, so in this week's magazine, I interviewed David Liddington, who, um, I mean, really is a delight to interview because it really is kind of like, in terms of the difficulty settings of interviews, he's just one of those quite interesting people where it's just like, let's turn this all the way down to casual. And Anoush, who's uh, had the dubious pleasure of doing an interview with me, will know how bad my questions are. One of the things that I found really striking about him, right, is that this is, you know, the longest serving a Europe minister of our time as members, the third longest serving Europe minister across the whole of the, you know, what used to be the whole of the bloc, and now obviously isn't. Someone who, one of his big regrets is he's just like, you know, we, we didn't start campaigning for the benefits of Remain early enough. But also someone who, you speak to him and you immediately understand at least I think you understand the main reason why our membership was just inherently unstable, which is, and he's a massive Eurosceptic, right? As like lots of nominal British pro-Europeans actually are. He thought the most significant speech uh, than you know, anyone had given on Europe recently was, was Macron's Europe of Circles. So, you know, this idea that you have, you know, inner ring of the Eurozone, security partnership, which has us in, something which has Ukraine in, which might also have us in, you know, that, you know, that kind of sort of what people used to call variable geometry, which, you know, you can you can make lots of good arguments for it, but it, it certainly ain't a full-throated engagement in the European project. And he often spoke with a kind of fond frustration almost about the, the European Union, including saying, look, one of the mistakes that the government is making is, you know, we aren't going to have a successful COP if we haven't got the EU on side. And he said, and you know, he said, by the time they reach an agreement through their own cumbersome processes, they're not going to unpick it for us. So we need to be engaged and, you know, working well with them before, not after that. And then you have kind of this weirdness and conservative outers. A lot of them, and this is slightly unfair because this is an observation I stole from a frustrated conservative outer, but in, you know, they said a lot of my parliamentary colleagues, they don't seem to, they, they can't seem to decide, is this organisation sclerotic or not? Because the, the weird thing about, yeah, like you have, okay, with, with Don Cummings saying, oh, we agree to fudge, I, I don't think it's useful to speculate whether or not he's being deceitful or is self-deceiving, but... It wasn't a fudge. It's quite clear. And also the thing that everyone ought to understand about the EU at this point is once they have managed to reach an agreement among um, the 27, it's still so painful for me to say the 27, once they have reached an agreement among the 27, it don't get unpicked that quickly. And the same is obviously going to be true of the protocol. And I say that someone who doesn't think the protocol is actually that sustainable long term. The backstop lover has logged back on, right? But but <laughs> he's kind of mad. I think that a large chunk of the Conservative Party basically seems to think, yeah, like the EU is slow when they want to berate Remainers, 
but fast when they are going to change anything that we don't like about about the the TCA. And it's just like those two things can't both be true. That's so true. If it was nimble enough to accept all of the uh, the changes that the that the UK government has just sort of like thrown out on the hoof, <laughs> then they probably would have wanted to stay in it. I wanted to go back to something that Alva said, the, the trust paradox, which I think is really interesting because obviously one of the narratives of this Brexit deal as a whole, but the Nor- Northern Ireland Protocol and its implications in particular is that Boris Johnson somehow sort of betrayed the trust of unionists in Northern Ireland. And it's already having implications on the ground, as we've already seen. Alva, are there more concerns that that could blow up over summer? Strangely not, actually, in that I think the worst has passed. I mean, I would need to ask more people about it, but I suppose the the big flashpoint is the 12th of July and the bonfires the night before and then, you know, parades go on all summer and it's sort of parade season. But around the 12th is probably the the biggest point of tension and sort of in, you know, pre-Brexit times, that would be a time when if there was ever trouble, when I was growing up, it was always around the 12th. So I think that the fact that that has passed off fine means that maybe there isn't so much of a an immediate worry about that but I suppose it's it just it's a simmering underlying tension it kind of can't be overstated how much the idea of the Irish sea border has cut through in unionist communities and is a target of a lot of bigger wider anger and alienation that you know people you know, there were signs about the Irish sea border on the on the bonfires. There's graffiti everywhere. People are, are, you know, displaying signs about the sea border on these orange marches and so on. So I think that it's it's still an issue. But certainly the DUP and the unionist parties are very happy with these proposals. You could say with, for example, that, it, that demand around the European Court of Justice, that's not something that people in Northern Ireland are particularly concerned about, or and it's not something that the Northern Irish parties themselves have been calling for. But, you know, so you could, I think, maybe query how much this is directly about things on the ground in Northern Ireland and the problems that Northern Irish people are experiencing and how much it's also to do with bigger ideological things that the British government doesn't like about the the deal that it negotiated. But I think that this probably feel like a concession to unionists. You know, the DUP has been, you know, talking about triggering Article 16 and so on and has just wanted to see the government taking a a tougher stance on this. And I suppose that these proposals look to to unionists as though the government is serious about it. And I think that the British government does actually genuinely feel that setting out the command paper has been quite a success in terms of getting people to talk about the issues it wants to talk about. And even if the EU says that it you know, won't be reopening negotiations around the protocol, it's clear that, I mean, they were already working on all of those issues. And I think it's it's clear that they are all going to be working quite hard on that. I don't think the EU is terribly bothered by the provocation in a way, even if it sees it as one. And so I think that they are going to still work towards some kind of concessions. The bigger problem for the protocol creates, actually, for the, I was about to say for the British government, and 
I realize actually if I'm, I'm going to specifically say the government in England because there is the distinct United Kingdom problem of what the sea border does to the union. But let's kind of put that for one side and consider their sort of other, and I would argue from their revealed preference, clearly the stuff which is actually more important to this government. The government really wants COP to be a success. They have a huge amount of emotional and political energy invested in it. They want a US-UK trade deal. And actually, also, one of the really positive things, I think, in the integrated review is they want and recognise the importance of the enduring security partnership. Okay, primarily the Anglo-French security partnership, but that inevitably is a U. EU-UK security partnership. And that's before you get into the issues around um, Putin and China, right? This idea that you're going to be able to progress as much as you want on those fronts while having this debate at the same time is obviously nonsense. And again, I I think the, the really interesting kind of question of at what point does this give is... I do think surely at some point there comes a point where just as, right, you know, we had essentially two and a bit years of conservatives, you know, around Boris Johnson going, you know, no, never, we will never, ever, ever, ever sign up to a sea border. It won't happen to surprise we've signed up to a sea border. I I suspect that we will similarly in this parliament have an awful lot of kind of, no, we we won't do it. We don't have to. There is no trade-off. And I think particularly in less Trump or a Trumpish to directly plagiarise something David Livingston said in terms of Trump or Trumpish, unless Trump or a Trumpish person beats Biden in in 2024, I don't think that we are going to have a situation where the UK government is going to go, oh yeah, this is brilliant, let's let's keep up with this sort of routine of of, of being continually at odds with the with with the EU and the and the US over this issue. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us. With the resignation of both of the Green Party's co-leaders within a short space of one another, who would be best placed and most interested in running for the leadership? And what does this mean for the future of the Green Party, particularly in in view of their recent successes? Anoush, for the benefit of our listeners who haven't been following this story, as the question says, the Greens co-leaders have resigned. What's that about, eh? So the Greens have two leaders, two co-leaders, Jonathan Bartley and Sean Berry. And they've both said within, uh, I think, the space of about two weeks that they're not really resigning, but they're not, they're not going to stand for leadership again. So Jonathan Bartley... He's led the party, co-led the party since 2016. He announced on the 5th of July that he would be quitting at the end of the month. And that's rather than carrying on until the next leadership election was due. They run them every two years, uh, which was going to be next September. So he's kind of finishing 
a year early. This is because basically there's a feeling in Westminster, not not just among the Greens, but a lot of politicians, that the next election is likely to be earlier than we thought, so maybe May 2023. And he wanted to give a chance for two other leaders to come through the ranks and acquaint themselves with the the public and become figures who could be talking heads in the in the run up of that election. And shortly afterwards, because there would have had to be a kind of what what they call a leadership by election to replace him, Sean Berry said she would not be standing in that in that leadership election and her reasons were more to do with politics in the party so she gave the reason that she has always tried to fight for trans rights and trans inclusion in her position but she feels that that's being compromised by some other figures at the top of the party and so she feels she can't in good faith stand again for the leadership so that means that this internal by-election which should be happening in the next few weeks or so neither of them will be running in it and there'll be two entirely new leaders of the party at the end of that process. So really what this shows is that there are definitely growing pains in this party that we've spoken before about on the podcast about how it's showing more maturity, you know, each with each and every election, the most recent being the local elections, it's won its record number of councillors. There's talk again of a green surge. There's a lot of interesting figures who are good media performers, which means that it's kind of shedding its Caroline Lucas problem, which is that Caroline Lucas was sort of always the best performer and the person most associated with the party. And she therefore had to take all of the sort of media slots and airtime. And they've they've been trying for a long time to get sort of more figures who could do that. And they have sort of successfully done that in, in figures like Berry and, and Bartley. But it's come at a cost, which is that the more high profile figures that you have representing a party, the more opportunity there is for disagreement and division between those figures. And although Sean Berry didn't mention this person by name. There is a spokesperson for the party. They 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 appointed a number of new spokespeople on the seventh of June, who they were really proud of. You know, they were, they unveiled them and sort of used them as an example to journalists that you know our party is maturing. We've got all these new, really impressive figures on our you know front bench and in inverted commas. But yeah, there's someone called Shara Ali who sort of wrote a thread about what what defines a woman which was taken by some people in the party to suggest that he was trans-exclusionary and that caused quite a lot of controversy. And so the fact that he is on this on the front bench obviously was not to Sean Berry's liking and she felt that it jarred with the party line, which is that transgender women are women and they have a right to self-identify. There, there have been problems, sort of uh, the most recent party conference with sort of motions trying to undermine that party line by a group of more so-called gender critical members of the party who were trying to change that. So there has been a trans rights kind of row in the party that's bubbled up to the top. I think this issue tells you less about the Green Party's stance on trans rights because their party line hasn't changed. I think it tells you more about what it's like as a small party that tries to rely on internal democracy to, to the point where it sort of makes you dysfunctional and what that means for when you're trying to become you know, a party that is explicitly trying to promote more of its spokespeople to high profile positions and, and spaces in the public imagination ahead of a general election. How does a party that's trying to mature in that way deal with these kind of issues? It's interesting because in some ways, actually, I think it's also a big party problem, right? In that the Green Party has managed to combine the existing Lib Dem rulebook in terms of 
how you set policy, but even more democratic, with the Labour Party's rulebook on how to select an opposition front bench uh, until 2011. But with where the shadow cabinet was elected, I'll be only by the PLP, not by the members. But, you know, I think candidly, it's it's just as dysfunctional. Now, Sean herself kind of you know, did a whole kind of, well, look, I still, I'm still committed to this. But Rosemary Sexton, a councillor in Solihull, seen by lots of people as a rising hope of that party, kind of said, well, look, I, I have lots of reasons I'm not running. But one of the reasons is, look, the current rule book does make it dysfunctional. And I think she's right, right? You cannot have a situation where... The party's leader thinks one thing on any on any central policy issue. The party membership then votes in the same direction as the party's leader as far as the policy is concerned. And then the party elects someone who disagrees with that policy to a key front bench post. That is just, I just think, a, a straightforward example of too much internal democracy because it creates this <laughs> perverse situation where it's like, do you agree with this? No. Can you change it? No. That is not an effective way to run a party. Yeah, we, we, we talked about this in the context of the Lib Dems and, and the constraints that places on Ed Davey. But I think it is one of the biggest secular reasons why, in terms of their their hopes and ambitions to replace the major parties and, and, and to grow, which first does run through becoming the third party. It doesn't, it does, you know, if you were to do a sort of risk register for the Greens, the rule book is surely one entry that's quite high up on the risk register. Definitely. And, and, and it's telling in itself that Rosie Sexton, who is very popular with the members, um, she came second, actually, in the last leadership election in 2020 to Berry and Bartley. It's telling that she's ruled herself out. And some of the reasons that she's given is this internal, I think she called it Byzantine governance arrangement stuff. You know, usually you'd think, well, you know, that's quite a boring reason not to run for a party that, you know, you're, you're clearly doing well in and that's and that has a good buzz around him that has been doing well in local elections. But you're right, you know, this might be this might sound like boring stuff to political outsiders, but it's super important if you're a party member and if you're, a, you know, even if you're leader of this party, it's it's a big obstacle to leading a sort of coherent policy platform, especially with an eye on a 2023 general election. I mean, how can you release a manifesto if you disagree with, you know, one of your key front bench voices. So I suppose the question was looking at sort of future green leaders and one of the potential successes could be the current deputy, Amelia Womack. But really the race is quite open, partly because of Rosie Sexton ruling herself out. So we'll have to see who puts themselves forward in the next few weeks. What's really important actually is that the Green Party manages to have a roster of impressive people who are good media performers to go on programs, do interviews, you know, perhaps do some of the debates ahead of the general election and not constantly negatively contrast with Caroline Lucas. So basically people who can come out of, of her shadow and do well on their own, as Sean Berry and Jonathan Bartley did very aptly. So that's the big challenge for, for the party is to make sure that they get more figures like that. And of course, talking of resignations, we have a special podcast series coming up. The first episode will be available to subscribers on Sunday and everyone else on Monday with Armando Iannucci, our guest presenter. And the first episode is about why people find it so hard to resign in politics these days. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our Britain editor, Anusha Kelly, and our political correspondent, Alva Ray. It's produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. From next week, we're joined for our special podcast series with Armando Iannucci. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts. 